Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you in due time. All right, so we are going to Acts 17, 22 through 31. Acts 17, 22 through 31. God's word. So Paul stood in the midst of the Aragopolis and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Since he himself gives to all people at IBC life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. For they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of our own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, God is now declaring to men and all people that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you're the author and finisher of our faith. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you for rising again and for building your church, especially right here at IBC. We ask you, Lord, that your spirit would move upon people that uh, this is our first time at this church, that you might inhabit the praises of more and more people right here in Port Angeles. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for our staff, for our pastors. We thank you for each one that you brought in here, and you are the teacher. And we pray for our pastor now as he brings forth the word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Am I on? 
They've actually made this fairly fancy up here. The, uh, from getting used to spilling communion or not having the water or reaching it down there. So it's, I appreciate modern technology. <laughs> the uh, series on the attributes of God has just been a real blessing to me and it's been a real blessing to our church. The, uh, this week we are going to talk about the aseity the aseity of God. And virtually the immediate response when I say that is, what does that mean? (laughs) And what it means is the self-existence of God. It's interesting as we go through this series on the attributes of God, you really do run into the insufficiency of our language. The... uh, Augustine actually attempted to address that on that and actually come up with some of the wording that is actually still used today in the, in the uh, explanation. And some of those examples, he uh, initially, and we've seen this already, a lot of the attributes are defined by negation. The, uh, the one we spoke about a couple weeks ago, the immutability of God. Mutability, changeable, immutability, not changeable. Infinite, finite, the changing of that or the negating of that, infinite. And then they use uh, another phrase that takes the normal capacity and takes it to the nth degree. And we see that with, with omniscience, omniscience or omnipotent, omnipotent, or presence, omnipresence. And then there's, then there's a small section there that is uh, just affirmation. They can't negate it, they can't expand it, because it stands in and of itself. Eternal would be one of those categories. And another of those categories is God's self-existence or aseity. As I thought about this, and, and what it may look like in the negation of that or some other ways to explain it. You know, you can certainly explain it for what it is. God's self-existence. A formal definition. It comes from Latin. Ah, from, say, self, from self. It's the property by which a a being exists of and from himself. Simple explanation or self-existence. Refers to the belief that God does not depend on any cause other than himself for his existence, realization, or end. And has within himself his own reason for existence. This represents God as absolutely independent, and self-existent by nature. I think the negation or the, the opposite of that would be ourselves. And I'm sure that, that all of us could come up with examples that indeed show, prove our, our, that we are contingent. We are, we are conditional. Conditional. 
One of the things that always stood out in my mind that I experienced several times, the, uh, back in the early days of my scuba diving, some of the old-time scuba divers know what I'm talking about, but before you would go underwater with nowadays they've got multiple gauges and stuff and uh, extra regulators and a pony tank and all those things that would constitute safety as much as you can within that environment. But back before all that was there, which at that time was very expensive, they had what they called a J-valve. And, and what this was is when you would fill your tank, you would put this valve in a particular spot. And then you would fill the tank. And what that would do is it would, would cordon off about, I think it was 30 pounds, so that when you got to that place, you'd be breathing and all of a sudden it'd be, and you'd reach back and you'd flip that switch and it would give you another 30 pounds and that would allow you to go to the surface and safely end your dive. And the other issue with that is if you didn't have that in the right spot, when you filled your tank, then you wouldn't have that reserve. So when I was diving, every time that happened, I had to ask myself, was that valve in the right spot? Am I going to have 30 pounds or am I out of air? But, but it was just, it, was, it, was, it really hit me at a, at, a, at a gut level that I am contingent, that I am conditional on air. That doesn't even take into account my three heart stents. And everybody's had those experiences to show that we are indeed conditional. We are indeed contingent. We do not have self-existence in and of ourselves. And it's really hard to find an example that illustrates that. Acts 17. I appreciate Burns reading in that. Thank you, brother. That passage is usually utilized for uh, a model or a pattern for evangelism or sharing the gospel with different cultures. But I picked this passage this time because it says some very interesting things that are applicable as we talk about the attributes of God. Paul was in Athens, Athens, Greece. This was, this was the, the birthplace of, of Socrates and his student later Plato and, and his student later uh, Aristotle. This was the, the home of, of Plato's academy. This was the home of Aristotle's Lyceum. Philosophers that even today we are drawn upon them for their explanations and recognize they really established a foundation for the physical explanations of our world. And numerous other philosophers that uh, we don't know as well. But this is about 300 years later. Paul is in Athens in about 50 A.D., on that. And it's really interesting that, that from deep thinkers and philosophers that did not know God, that 300 years later, the, 
greatest, the largest industry in that city was the manufacturing of idols. They, the sociologists, historians say that there must have been about 3,500 gods for which they made idols for, made of gold, made of wood, and whatever else they had. And they had Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, the uh, god of wine, the, uh, the mystery religions. And then on top of that, at this particular time, they had all the Roman gods. And then, of course, even as that passage illustrates, they had the god, the unknown god. Just in case we miss somebody. Don't want to offend anybody. The God who made the world and all things, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. As though he needed anything. In our conversation here a couple weeks ago, as we spoke of the immutability of God, that God does not change on that, that he also is, uh, we use the word impassable, which means that God does not have emotions like we have emotions. And a lot of the things that are illustrated in the Old and New Testament citing emotions are really anthropomorphic. There are actually ways that, that we would, we could feel if, to illustrate as close as we can get to the way God would deal with those things. But he did not need anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. As I look through this, as I looked through the word, I was actually surprised that there is much implied, there is many implicit passages that, that cite God's self-existence, that is lack of need, but there are very few explicit passages that specifically cite that. But as I continue to look through this and, and think about God's self-existence, and we'll talk a little more about this, that there are really rational and logical foundations for knowing that this is indeed the truth. One of the passages that, that is there is John 5, verses 25 Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. That is a very explicit statement. For just as the Father has life in himself, you don't derive it from anyone or anything. It is not conditioned or conditional on anyone or anything, internal or external. 
And even so, even as he has that, he can give that. And even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And we see that same thing in verse 24. And we see that in John 3.16. As God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Acts 17 continues... He made one man from every nation, one man of every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist. God's self-existence. He needs nothing. We've talked about God's immensity. We've talked about God's immutability. We've talked about God's holiness. We've talked about those things that really begin to frame our thoughts about God. The passages that we've seen, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. The passage that says, he is not a man like us. You know, it's just amazing to what extent we begin to define our circumstances or what God should do or doesn't do by our assumptions, by the way we think about our circumstances. But we oftentimes forget that God is not like us. For in him we live and move and exist. You know, this, this is an extension of the idea of aseity, the idea of self-existence. Not just that he lives without any contingency, without any dependency on anything else, but the second notion attaches itself to aseity. It is the idea that God is independent of all things in that his choices and purposes are independent of influences of, from anyone and anything other than himself. This comes alongside sovereignty, in which God has the faculty of absolute self-determination. And absolute self-determination means that God's choices depend on his own desires and purposes alone and that he has the power to actualize those choices. I guess it's a good time to enter into this. You know, as we, as we talk about <clears throat> actualization versus potential, The, if I want to move from point A to point B, I have the potential to do that. And if I moved here on that, then that became actualized. The idea that God 
is pure life. He is pure actualization in every aspect of his being. Not only are we contingent, but we have potential. We are trying to figure out if we are going to go from point A to point B. If we are going to go D-U-B, something, you name it. God is pure actualization, not only in who he is, but also in who we are. This is where we start to get a little weird. You know, when we, <clears throat> when we talk about this also, these are the things that actually begin to formulate certain theological schools. You know, the idea that with our Arminian brothers and sisters, that they look down through the corridors of time and see whether we did or did not make a choice for Christ. And then what follows is the benefits of that, or the results of that. As opposed to a, the Calvinistic view is that the first issue that comes up is regeneration. God chooses. And I, you know, some of those things, I could argue both sides of that equation on that. The, uh, but it really comes to where do we stand with a big God and not so big man? Or is God contingent on what we do or don't do? And do we have a big man and a not so big God? And that may be an overstatement. Those of you that may want to argue with that or uh, after the service, that's fine. That may be an overstatement, but that's one way to recognize that. Then we have some of the more extreme divisions in process theology, which basically says God is learning as he goes along. That, you know, I I have thoughts of my life as I think about God learning in process theology. I can see him going, again? (laughs) Then there's open theology. That's similar but that, once again, it's, it's, God is not actualized. He is waiting to actualize based upon our choices. You know, but I've seen as I walked through this and looked at some of the thoughts, some of the philosophies, some of the passages around this, that there is rational support for aseity, for self-existence. There's, there's logical support for aseity, for self-existence. And there's ontological support. The uh, ontological is relating to the branch of metaphysics, uh, dealing with the nature of being. I'm not going to get weird on you. You know, the, one of the arguments, it's interesting, one of the arguments for, the, for God's existence and therefore, God's self-existence is the concept of the necessary being. 
The concept of the necessary being, that there's a necessary being that must exist. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is for you to exist, your parents had to exist. For your parents had to exist, their parents had to exist. And we can take that back and back and back and back and back. But at some point, at some point, there is the first necessary being. There's thoughts. Somebody said, that, well, maybe they created himself. The, uh, the idea that if someone was going to create themselves, and this is not logical or rational, if someone was going to create themselves, they would have to be before they were. That was my response. But a necessary being, a primary being that was there from the beginning, not contingent, not dependent, not conditional, a necessary being that never comes into existence, never goes out of existence. He depends on nothing to maintain his being. <clears throat> this necessary being is logically self-existent. In our language, we call him God. Another logical or... Uh, and I apologize for this, teleological line of thought or explanation of phenomena. This is, teleological is, is an explanation of phenomena in terms of the purpose that it serves. And Aristotle, kind of going back to actually one of the first philosophers in Athens, on that, he, he put forward the idea of the unmoved mover, the unmoved mover. You know, the, the, the physical law that says a body in motion will stay in motion until acted upon by an outside force, or a body in rest will stay in rest until acted upon by an outside force. But God, the necessary being, is the unmoved mover. Something had to start, something had to stop. And this goes back to that idea of actualization. It's not just about potential, but it had to be an actualized, unmoved mover that created the world, that created you. That keeps everything going the way it's supposed to go according to his way and his will. So we talked about the, the biblical passages. We talked about the logical reason for the God's self-existence. We talked about the ontological. We've talked about the teleological. Now we will talk about the cosmological. And that relates to the origin and the development of the universe. And for that, we go back to, and the kids are going, ah, 
I didn't think school started yet. (laughs) But that goes back to the first verse. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And, And what's logical about that is that the statement that, that all that is not God, all that is not God was created by God. As you, as you think through this idea of the unmoved mover as the preliminary, primary, necessary being, as in the beginning God we see that, that all that is not God was created by God. Some of these things, it really is a... a, a time and a place and a way of meditation. It's In many ways, it's not the kind of thing that, uh, unless you have the capacity of William Lane Craig, he was one of those that debated in the college campuses uh, with the likes of Ravi Zacharias and such uh, regarding the existence and the self-existence of God. You know, unless you go into it that deep and contemplate these ideas, sometimes it just, it, it takes you up to a place where I get a little lost in my head and my heart. And I, and I want to come back to, to where I can understand and see and feel. You know, I remember, remember those rides, those rides, they had one at Disneyland. And it was, you'd get into this and and the visuals around you would begin to shrink the atoms. Actually, it would begin to shrink you. And the atoms around you would begin to grow until you are actually immersed with these micro, micro things. The atoms and quarks and and whatever else is out there at a micro level. But you kind of go through that and you see all that and they're, giving you these explanations, and then you start to come back through that, and everything begins to shrink again, and pretty soon you're back at your own same size. Or some of those rides that that take you into the atmosphere out there, and all of a sudden you're floating among the planets. And then it brings you back, and you're just observing the stars and the skies. That's kind of where I go with some of those things with when I'm looking at thinking about the self-existence of God. One of the things we'll be talking about, and I think Mike's next week, I don't mean to encroach, but the idea of transcendence. God is out there. There's aspects that, that I do not, cannot, ever will fully understand. And then there's the imminence. That this God that is out there, he's right here. You know, and, and it's really surprising, even as I say, there's not that many passages that, while it implies God's self-existence, 
It's not that many passages that were overtly explicit about that. But the entire Bible, from beginning to the end, speaks to God's imminence. That he knows you. And he wants you to know him, not that he's out there separate. He's not promoting deists that uh, believe that God wound it up and walked away. And you're on your own. God's transcendence is indeed there. Even as we talked about his omnipresence and his immensity. He's fully everywhere all the time. That is eternal. But he wants you to know that he is there with you. In the midst of your circumstances. In the midst of, of our frailty. In the midst of our conditionness. That he makes very clear. That there are many, many verses. I like one that says, Isaiah, it's Isaiah 57, verse 15. It says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. Two things right there he starts out and says, This is my transcendence. I live forever. I am the beginning and the end. I am holy. It says, I dwell on the high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest, is what Jesus says. So as we struggle with our daily life, as we enter into those areas and and difficulties with our job, with our family, physical, whatever the case may be. It's like you come in and we're talking about all of this, God's transcendence, self-existence. On that, what that says, the value of that, what difference that makes in our lives is that he has the power. He has the power come to you and give you that peace that is not subject to circumstances to direct your head and your heart to walk in obedience with his way and his will God is with us